Quick Mount PV presents Solar Roof Talk with the latest from the world of rooftop solar with your hosts Susan Stark and Jeff Spees. Welcome back to another installation of Solar Roof Talk. My name's Jeff Spees and I'm here with my co-host Sue Stark. How are you doing today, Sue? I'm great, Jeff. A little chilly here in the Northeast. And Hope you're doing a little, a little better there. A little chilly here in Phoenix, but it's a different kind of chilly than the Northeast, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. It's getting down into the high 30s now here, which is our winter, and uh, it's been a few weeks since our last recording, and in that time, a lot has happened in the industry, and uh, probably the most interesting thing that happened in my life is we conducted the third and final Solar Pioneer Party in Mendocino County, which was a wonderful event attended by over 300 people who had the opportunity to see the debut of the documentary film that I've been working on for the past two years, which is titled Solar Roots, The Pioneers of PV, where we interviewed over 50 people that were instrumental in starting the solar industry back in the early 80s, and uh, the audience really seemed to enjoy it. And Sue, you were there. Maybe you could share some of your observations. It was fabulous. We laughed. We cried. Literally, Kelly Ross next to me was crying in her chair when uh, not just with with laughter, but uh, with true emotion. You've you've really done an amazing job, Jeff. Yeah. And 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 Jason as well. And Jason Vetterly, who's the director of the film, who also works with us at Quick Mount PV, really was masterful in assembling the material in a way that tells a fascinating story. One of the things I felt very happy about is many of the pioneers that were featured in the film told me afterward that they learned a lot about how the PV industry developed that they didn't know. They knew their own little piece of the puzzle. But of course, the work that Jason and I invested two years in were trying to take all these little stories and weave them together into a bigger story about how the industry really started. And I feel solid that our story is solid from beginning to end. I agree. I think it's a little bit like the blind man and the elephant and that each person seems to know a little bit about their area. Um, Yeah, we're all solar nerds, but we tend to um, just sort of get information from our own sources. And you have woven together a very complete story. And many of us didn't know nearly the half of it. And for those that aren't familiar, we actually, our story started in the mid 1800s when the uh, photovoltaic effect was first discovered. And in fact, the first rooftop PV system was installed in the, the on record was installed in the 1880s in New York, but it wasn't until the 1950s with the development of the silicon solar cell by Bell Labs that the modern PV technology really took root and the industry as we've defined it really took off in the early 1980s when homeowners started to realize that they could power their off-grid homes with solar panels cost effectively. And that is the story that we focus on is the start of the industry in the early 80s. And our story ends in the early 2000s, where it was clear that the PV industry was firmly established once grid tie solar took off in California and elsewhere. Well, it was also not just the Solar Roots documentary, but the entire event was uh, was top-notch from start to finish. We rode on the skunk train in Willits, California. We camped at the KOA. Uh, we drank, we laughed, we ate, and we had just an awesome time with some of the legends of the solar industry. And while it was the final Solar Pioneer Party, uh, we will be continuing over time to gather together our solar family and what will be called the Solar Family Reunion uh, dates and locations to be determined. But it's nice to see that the individuals that helped build this industry in its early days still have that desire to reconnect on a, a regular basis with their with their uh, industry connections, with their friends. And really, uh, uh, the reason it's going to be called the Solar Family Reunion is so many of us that were in the industry before it grew so big uh, felt that it had a real family feel that we all have the desire to preserve going forward. So I'm pleased to say that we've now got a group of five on a committee that will be making decisions as to the when and where of the solar family reunion. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to the next of these events that likely occur either later in 2018 or maybe early in 2019. 
Yeah, I am too. I've been to uh, two of the Solar Pioneer parties and I'm looking forward to the next phase of the Solar Family Reunion. And you only missed the second Solar Pioneer party because you went to the Australian Solar Pioneer right. party at that time. So I did. I was. I happened to be in Sydney, Australia, and I went to the Solar Pioneers of Australia, which I, I forgot to give you that pin. I've got a, a Solar Pioneer Australia pin for you, Jeff. Well, shifting back to the real world of solar, probably the thing that so many industry professionals are focused on at this stage is the uh, the trade case, the Section 201 trade case. And uh, just to cite some dates that ant that people are anticipating, January 26, as I understand right now, is the latest date at which uh, the White House, Donald Trump, can announce the uh, what the tariff might end up being. And uh, maybe, Sue, you can tell a little bit in generalities of where the process stands with the International Trade Commission, what their determinations are, and what we might expect to see here in the coming weeks. Well, I'm no expert on this, but my understanding is that the trade representative um, has pr provided a report to President Trump and he can decide whether or not to implement any of the recommendations. And I believe there were a split decision between the justices on what they thought that the tariff should look like, um, how much it should be, whether it's a percentage or whether it's a floor price or all of those things were cobbled together in a four page report from what I've heard um, presented to the president. And the rumor is that he dismissed it out of hand and said, I'll do what I want to do. Um, and as we know, the one thing about um, President Trump is that uh, if he's predictable at all, it's that he's unpredictable. So Agreed. we don't know what will happen. And I've heard, uh, at least the reporting that I've read, seems to indicate that Donald Trump has the desire to assess signif as significant a tariff as is possible to quote, send a message to the Chinese about trade issues, in essence, using the solar industry as a, uh, a, a tool to communicate to the Chinese our displeasure with their trade practices. So it's unfortunate that we in the solar industry are caught in the situation that we're in. And I, I fear that we may see the maximum tariff that can be applied uh, enacted by Donald Trump. Now, that said, the question, I guess, is what is the maximum tariff that could be applied? And maybe, so you can talk about what your understanding is as, as what the common practice has been in the past for assessing tariffs. What's the limit that can be put on a product? Well, I believe it was 50% uh, of the sales price. Is that uh, your understanding as well? Well, that's been and, what I've heard, yes. Yeah, so we don't uh, know how that's going to be assessed. Is that the sales price from the manufacturer to the distributor? Uh, is, you know, where do we start with that sales price? What's the number? Um, so a lot of unknowns and the fact that the justices were split on what it should be based on, how it should occur, and um, these floor prices, sales prices, all the definitions of those remain to be seen. And, and it's an interesting issue because if you're a premium module like an LG or a SunPower, you could see a disproportionate uh, penalty that the tariff would impose upon your product versus some of the more budget PV modules on the market. Right. And they weren't the cause of this issue at all. They actually were making premium modules well below above the floor price that Cineva and SolarWorld originally asked to be instituted. So they shouldn't suffer from this, in my mind. Um, they were already pr producing a premium product at a floor price that was well above a reasonable amount and, for and, Solar World and Cineva to compete with. And to think that they would be disproportionately penalized is kind of ironic. And, and I think that we'll see a lot of legal challenges that will crop up after an announcement is made. Uh, but who knows what may happen? I think because everybody is convinced Donald Trump is unpredictable, maybe he'll go an, a totally different route and have a tariff that would be less than the maximum. The, the rhetoric that we've heard to date suggests that the maximum tariff would be what's likely. 
and if Donald Trump does what he normally does in surprising people, maybe it will be a lot less than that. Let us hope so. It's a pleasant surprise. Let's hope. Reverse. However, I did read in the uh, Portland Business Journal that the 15 bidders waiting to bid on the assets of SolarWorld AG uh, have decided to wait until January 26th so that they know exactly what this company is worth um, once this tariff has been imposed. 15 bidders. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. And probably as, as uh, we've thought possibly, you know, Trina and some of the, uh, the major Chinese companies are in line to, to pick up the asset to solar world. Maybe even a company like LG would uh, want, or SunPower would want to buy a company like SolarWorld to now have domestic manufacturing. Yeah, it could very well be. And I, that's going to be a nice surprise as well. Well, moving on, our, our primary topics that we wanted to address today are uh, a couple interesting technical developments. Uh, the first relates to vent pipes under PV arrays. There's always been a lot of uncertainty in the industry as to whether it's permissible to cut a vent pipe off and cover it with a solar panel. And thanks to some recent developments in the language of the International Plumbing Code, uh, we have indeed uh, gotten some clarity that we'll be talking about. And we are also going to be talking about the new relaxed setbacks and pathways for PV arrays. So these are two juicy topics, the relaxed setbacks and pathways, much more juicy, but we're not going to be able to give you a comprehensive explanation as to how it works because uh, uh, there, it's still a developing story. This language is still being interpreted. And in our review for today's podcast, uh, we spoke with one of the subject matter experts in this area, and uh, during the conversation, we came up with maybe four or five additional significant questions as to how a jurisdiction might interpret this new language for relaxed setbacks and pathways. But we will tell you some of the basics of it. I think it's overall good. Unfortunately, it's more complex, so that's the negative. But the sum total, I think, will be a positive development for the solar industry as a whole. So with that said, I guess we can jump into a topic that's been often discussed over the years without a lot of clarity as to what is permissible or acceptable. And that is the fact that in the latest International Plumbing Code, language has been introduced that officially acknowledges cutting a vent pipe under a PV panel. And, right. uh, the, it, it should be mentioned in a state like California that follows the Uniform Plumbing Code uh, that this language has not been introduced into the Uniform Plumbing Code. It has been introduced, however, into the International Plumbing Code. Now, these are two competing codes. Uh, California, of course, follows the Uniform Plumbing Code. But the International Plumbing Code still has relevance by nature of the fact that it's developed by the International Code Council, which develops the International Building Code, International Residential Code, International Fire Code. And this is the first time in any of the code books that cutting a vent pipe off is uh, addressed. And just to kind of uh, state some of the basics of vent pipes, typically speaking, a vent pipe needs to be six inches uh, for a bat, uh, for any kind of plumbing vent stack needs to be six inches above the roof surface or six inches above where the snow accumulation would be. Uh, so in the Northeast, Sue, maybe you can tell us what you've seen in terms of plumbing vent stack height off the roof. Um, I'm thinking about the ones on my own roof and I would say they're a minimum of six inches uh, because we do get significant snow here in very northern New Jersey. Um, I would bet that they're at least eight inches off the roof, if not more, um, because I've I've seen a lot more than six inches of snow on my roof at any one time. Well, and, and, and the code language, which uh, we're looking at here, states, and this again is the international uh, residential code language, states that the uh, open vent pipe shall terminate not less than six inches above the roof or six inches above the anticipated snow accumulation. Now on your roof, for example, how deep might the snow get? Well, I have a cedar shake roof, which tends to hold the snow. Um, and it is a probably a nine or a 10 pitch, but it doesn't slide off. It tends to stick. So I would guess that I can get at least a foot of snow on that roof, if not more. 
And by the International Residential Code, if that were enforced in a, a jurisdiction like where you live, in theory, that would mean your vent pipe would need to stick maybe 18 inches off the roof. So this is an interesting topic, to say the least. Right. But when we cover it with a PV panel, it's not really going to be exposed to snowpack. We know that, um, unless it may be really close to the top edge of the array. Um, again, if you have the PV panel directly covering it, it's a pretty safe space, right? Yes, and, and so the question that I've heard over the years from installers is, gee, if I'm going to cut the vent pipe off, first of all, is this permissible? And, and again, up till now, the answer was maybe. We don't know. There's nobody that's ever addressed it. But the answer today with the language in the International Plumbing Code is, yes, you can absolutely cut off that, um, that vent pipe. But there are some dimensional limitations that one must be aware of. The first is that you must have the vent pipe uh, extend above the roof surface, even if it's covered by a solar panel, by a minimum of two inches. Now, this is an interesting dimension, if for no other reason, that you have to think about the flashing and the flashing height. Now, a right. typical OD flashing, the cone, the rubber and the, and the metal cone, it's a pretty modest height off the roof. I would guess it's about an inch, inch and a quarter, would you? Well, it might be a little bit more when you start to add the rubber seal. And it's interesting because that oh, rubber, rubber seal, seal, yeah, the rubber, and, and that is a, a question is how, where you might measure that. But I would say when you measure the metal cone plus the subtle cone that gets developed by the rubber seal, that you're going to be around two inches off of a shingle roof. On tile, though, it, it, you know, typically speaking, you're cone could be a little bit higher than that. So that's the first dimension one has to look at is that, that the cut vent pipe cannot be closer to the roof surface than two inches. And then you have to have a appropriate flashing that would within that two inch space provide sufficient protection. And then more importantly, from the top of the vent pipe that you've just cut down to the obstruction over the top of it, your PV module, you must have a minimum of the inside diameter dimension of that pipe. Now, typically, uh, plumbing vent stacks are two inch inside diameter. So if that's the size of vent stack that's being used on the particular roof, you now have to have two inches over the top of the vent stack free and clear. And the question then becomes, what's directly over that vent pipe? Because sometimes it can be the back sheet of the module, which is recessed up into the module. And in other cases, depending on the layout of your array, it might be the frame of the module. It could be an MLPE device. It could be a junction box, right? That's so true. we do have to see what ends up directly over that vent pipe and determine whether or not you've got the diameter of that pipe above it or else you could fail. Now, the good news is that just if you were to look at the law of averages, most cases you would be just the back sheet above it. So you'd have that extra one and a quarter, one and a half inches uh, from the bottom of the module frame to the back sheet of the module to work with. Quite honestly, in summary, I would argue that these new requirements are manageable and, and achievable. It's not going to be onerous for a solar installer to cut a vent pipe with a standard racking system, put a PV module over it, making sure that your module level electronic device or your frame isn't right over the vent pipe. Uh, that's, that's achievable. And this is good news because now it does recognize officially practice that's been used for years. Um, but there are some dimensional challenges that one could enter into with these requirements. Uh, again, keep in mind, most plumbing vent stacks in residential structures would be two inches in diameter. So you'd need that two inch clearance over the top. You'd need two inches from the top of the vent pipe to the roof. So now you're talking your PV module has, has to be spaced high enough off the roof to accommodate this, but it shouldn't be too problematic. Now I'm seeing arrays as low as three and a half um, to the to the underside of the frame, right? That's a, a typical low height. Agreed. So that gives you another, let's say, 35 to 40 millimeters between the frame and the glass, um, which should, should be sufficient to meet that requirement. 
Now, there was some additional language which I found interesting in uh, the 2018 International Residential Code that addresses the whole cutting the vent pipe down. And it says that such event terminals, they're talking about the vent pipe, shall be protected by a method that prevents birds and rodents from entering or blocking the vent pipe opening. Now, that's some new language. Uh, I, I actually uh, did talk with a co-worker of mine who had a squirrel come in through the toilet because it chased an acorn down a vent pipe. <laughs> and once the squirrel went in one direction, it could only come out the toilet. So they had a squirrel running around in their house. But uh, uh, now with this new language in the International Residential Code acknowledging cutting down vent pipes, you now have to put some kind of a screen over the vent pipe. Now, I'm unaware of any standard products on the market for that purpose. Sue, have you seen any? No, I would think that somebody's going to have to use a little hardware cloth with a tech screw or something into the vent in order to make it work. Yeah, and, and, and in fairness, it sounds like a pretty easy device for anybody to construct. If you just get this that galvanized quarter-inch screening material, uh, and uh, I, I, I suspect you could probably get a plumbing fitting that you could use a, just a something that would, you know, a, a couple sure, open a coupler and then put some screen inside of it. Precisely. Sure. So that might do the trick right there. It might add a little oh, height, right but I still think everything would work out well. And in fairness, I think that preventing vent pipes from allowing birds to drop debris down in there is certainly a desirable thing. Cause I, I've, I had pigeons under my array. I ended up fencing off the array. I would probably put a plug in for always fencing arrays wherever you have pigeons or squirrels in the area because the damage that we've seen from nesting from pigeons and squirrels in PV arrays is a, I would classify it today as a significant hazard. Yeah. Now I would say that it's a really good idea if you're going to start using this practice and cutting these vent pipes off that you pre-fabricate some of these little screened uh, caps that you are ready to put on because there are pretty standard uh, dunnage pipe you know, vents that are out there. So prefab some, throw them on every truck so that you're ready to do this without making your installer make it on site. And it's certainly a business idea for anybody out there that might want to pre-manufacture some of these quick and easy screened caps for vent pipes to comply with this new code requirement. So, um, uh, but I'll, I'll reiterate that when I fenced off my array, I did it, gee, I'd say two years ago, it was an incredibly unpleasant experience. Um, I found there's only a couple products on the market today that are intended for screening off arrays. And quite honestly, I'm not really thrilled with the, the one I chose. It looks good. It was incredibly difficult to install. It was a time-consuming process. Uh, the other product I'm aware of, while it's faster to install, if it's used on a shingle roof, the screen actually rests right down on the shingles, which... Yeah, which will break the granules very quickly. Yeah, well, it'll start scraping the granules off. You'll see the shingles wearing out in that area. So I, I haven't seen a perfect screening product on the market yet. Sue, have you seen anything different than I've seen? There's one in use here in the Northeast, which is basically a peel and stick adhesive onto the module. Um, the question is how long that adhesive will last. I mean, it's just some kind of a 3M adhesive that it's supposed to last a long time, but 25 years is a long time. It's a lot of heat and cold and weather to uh, to last that long and even getting the screening materials an interesting challenge the material that i finally ended up getting i got from a mill back in new hampshire i believe it was it was a special order it's not a standard type of product it was a plasticized pvc coated quarter inch uh galvanized wire mesh screen it, it actually looks good and it's robust but again it's just not a standard material that you're going to find in many places i had to order it from the mill yeah, and this material that I've seen, I can't remember the brand name of it, but um, it has diamond-shaped holes knocked into it as a, a piece of sheet metal with diamond plate holes. So it looks to me like it is going to impede airflow, and I'm not thrilled about that. So I would rather uh, see a hardware cloth or a screen, but then the question is, you know, how do you keep that from touching the granules? And, and again, from a business uh, opportunity perspective, I feel that screening off arrays is still a open business opportunity for a company that can devise a better system than the ones that I've seen so far. I would agree with you there. 
So, so I guess just to quickly summarize, uh, it is now per the residential and plumbing code acceptable to cut a vent pipe, per, assuming you have uh, normally two inches over the vent pipe, two inches of clearance off the roof, and that you screen the vent pipe. But we'll clarify, this is in the new 2018 IRC language, uh, which has not been adopted, I don't think, anywhere yet. But jurisdictions will look to forward code, uh, in my experience, and allow that to be adopted now because they have that power um, as the authority having jurisdiction they are actually the last person in line to say whether or not you can do something or not. And if you convince them that the code is coming down the line and that it's a much more reasonable approach, I think that it's um, it's something that you can convince your local AHJ of if you have the documentation for this forward code. That's a valid point. And, and even though California, for example, won't be adopting the 2018 residential code until 2020, doesn't stop an installer in the state of California from using this new language in the IRC and the International Plumbing Code as uh, as the only reference to this practice that exists in the code books at all. So uh, I, I would encourage installers to look up that language. You can go get it from the ICC website for free. ICC Safe has a public access code language section to their website and go into the discussion with the building department prepared with this language. And I've, I feel that this now formally acknowledges a practice which has been done, but it wasn't clear if it was permissible. It's also worth mentioning there's a few other options. When you want to get rid of that vent pipe obstruction, uh, I used a couple on my roof. A simple approach, well, maybe not so simple, is you reroute your vent pipe from one side of the ridge to the other. I did that with... Uh, gas vent stack on my when I put my PV system on and one of my plumbing vents. And another option that I used was uh, something called an air admittance valve, which is a one-way air valve. It'll allow air to be sucked into your vent pipe so that your water will drain, but it will not allow sewer gases to be expelled into the attic. So what we did is we cut the vent pipe off in the attic, put on what's called a Studor, Studer valve, S-T-U-D-O-R, Studer's the manufacturing, of an air admittance valve, and it will allow air to be sucked into the vent pipe, but not expelled out. Unfortunately, it's not permissible in all jurisdictions, although Studer on their website has included a lot of jurisdictional support where they've gotten approval. Um, when I've talked with solar professionals, I've never heard anybody express concern that this air admittance valve would not be an acceptable approach, and it's worked well on my system, so I feel it is a good option for people that want to get rid of a vent pipe on the roof. So when you think about the concept of the sewer gases coming back out of that vent in certain situations, what happens when that vent is underneath the array now and there happens to be a bathroom fan or something nearby, what's the chances that you're going to get that sewer gas somehow recirculating back into the home? And I will acknowledge in my own system where I have now a bathroom vent fan relatively close to a plumbing vent stack that's covered that you can indeed get some of those gases coming back down through bathroom vent fans. It's not a big problem for me. It seems to happen uh, in the late spring, early summer time frame here in the Phoenix area. Uh, but another situation that could bring about that uh, problem is if you have a big snowfall, if you cover a vent pipe now with, with a big snowfall, now you have a bathroom vent and a plumbing vent stack that are covered by the array. And the array now has an encapsulation of heavy, wet snow covering the whole arrangement. Not certain what the impact might be. And, uh, uh, it, it could be an issue with it for short duration time for certain installations. And the last thing an installer wants is a customer complaint uh, revolving around that if the customer figures out that that's what you've done is cover the vent and possibly cause the situation inadvertently. Which is where one of these air admittance valves might be a better solution. Right. There is one additional option for people that have vent pipes that are causing problems. There's a product called Solar Roof Jack. Although it's a relatively new product and uh, there's not a lot of installations out there yet, but what it does is it reroutes your plumbing vent uh, 
uh, to outside the array. So it's just a, you're going to attach some more PVC pipe to the vent. You're going to you're going to take that vent as it's coming out of the roof and use a fitting that starts to take it uphill or to the side so that it will exit out of the array and um, you know in essence it preserves your vent it just reroutes it it's not a inexpensive approach necessarily it can be technically challenging particularly if you have to get a vent pipe under your rail because sometimes there's not very much space between the roof and the underside of a rail to get a two inch diameter vent pipe running uphill on the roof but it, it could be run to the side and allow you to reroute your vent pipe. So that product, again, is made by a company called Solar Roof Jack. Might be worth checking out if you have these types of challenges. Yeah, a little planning goes a long way in this case. I did end up on an installation once where the vent was supposed to be rerouted um, when they put in a new roof and, and got ready for a PV array. And when I got to the job site, there was that vent. They hadn't done it. Uh, so we had to reconfigure the entire array. And then, of course, we had a little shading on couple of the panels and it was uh, not fun. It never ceases to amaze me how a small, a seemingly small issue such as a vent pipe that's six inches on the inside of where your array was going to be can cause some significant changes to uh, redesigning the system to avoid that vent pipe or yeah, it's real problematic. Yep, it was. So our uh, main topic that we wanted to address today, I think, is a, is a positive development, and that is the relaxation in the latest code cycle of the uh, fire setbacks and pathway requirements that came into existence several years ago. And this caused a lot of consternation initially in California, in particular when it first came into existence, where PV arrays, rather than being able to fill the entire roof surface, which had been common practice in many installations prior to that time, now had to have a setback from your ridge of three feet and two pathways going up each roof surface that got a PV array of three feet wide. And this, in calculations that we've done, reduced the maximum size of an array that could be fit on a roof by around 25 to 30%. So it was a big impact. On my own PV system, I had it installed before the setbacks started to be enforced several years back. And had I been required to have a three-foot ridge setback and two pathways up the array, rather than getting 4.7 kilowatts on my roof, I would have probably been down to about three kilowatts. So it would have reduced my PV array by more than a third of its current size. And that's worrisome. It also would have probably made you question whether it was smart to do the job at all. And I think that that's the major point here is that um, this will free up installations that basically fell off the possibility of installing back to the possibility of installing. And you should be able to regain some clientele that said, you know, 3 kW is just not worth it. And, you know, the price per watt that you have to charge to put in a 3 kW system is pretty extreme. So once you've gotten that back to a reasonable size, um, it's much more viable. That can be the same for this plumbing vent situation. Um, we've got some roofs that have vents all over them. And somebody said, well, I can't do that job because all those vents. So it should... Uh, uh, increase your ability as an installer to go back to sites that were uh, refused and maybe be able to install solar there. You know, as a bit of an aside, when I was in Japan a few years ago, I uh, was asking about how they waterproof penetrations in the roof because, you know, uh, they were putting solar on a lot of roofs and, and, and uh, they said, well, we don't really have penetrations in Japanese roofs. And I said, well, how do you vent your plumbing? And they say, we vented out the wall. And I thought, Gee, that'd be nice if they did that here in the U.S. To for solar installers to not have to deal with uh, any kind of penetrations in the roof would be a wonderful thing. But uh, as far as the setbacks and pathways uh, come into play, those have been more of a challenge than the vent pipe obstacle because you know trying to accommodate 36-inch setback from the ridge again reduces your array size, but the trying to cram in also two pathways up that roof surface uh, can be complex when you look at roof structures that are far from the simple models that are shown in the diagrams that we often see for this. Of course, typically what you see is usually gable end, single ridge roof. Well, there are houses like that, 
but not that many. Oftentimes you have dormers or you have uh, hips and valleys. And on my roof, I have a 2,600 square foot home in the Phoenix metropolitan area that has 14 individual roof faces, 14. And my roof, I would say, is more typical of what you're going to find in an average home. So trying to decipher these setbacks and pathways when they were significant in in the old code code cycles was problematic. So in the new code cycle, and we can't describe all the variations because quite honestly, it's a lot more complex now. While they've been relaxed, the complexity with the variations in roof types has increased, but we'll try to give you at least a basic explanation of what the relaxed setbacks and pathway language states and try to highlight some of the complexities we envision that installers will face as they're going to building departments trying to get approval with these new setbacks and pathways. Now, I'll start out by saying that the good news in California is they are implementing the new relaxed setbacks and pathways in July of 2018. So we're only about six months away from seeing these formally introduced. However, uh, there's nothing that would stop an installer in California or anywhere else from appealing to a building department to uh, recognize the new relaxed setbacks and pathways that come about in the 2018 fire residential and building code, as well as NFPA one for those states like Massachusetts that follow that as their fire code rather than the international fire code. So the, the full impact of this will be felt in July in California with the implementation of what's called the intervening code cycle. So just to do a quick kind of summary overview of what this means, the new relaxed setback and pathways state that for most roofs, uh, you no longer need a 36 inch setback from the ridge. You can now have only an 18 inch setback from the ridge and this grew out of what was called the Colorado Compromise that started, gosh, I guess that would have been, what, four years ago in Boulder that they implemented the relaxed setbacks. So uh, this is not new. It's been used in Colorado for for three or four years. But rather than having a 36-inch setback from the ridge, you only require an 18-inch setback, assuming that you have... Uh, less than 33% of the total roof area covered. Now, again, there's some variables that we'll talk about, but uh, this is, is, is a very beneficial thing. And you need to still have two pathways on the roof, but rather than those two pathways having to be on the same roof surface that the PV array is on, now they could be on what are called adjacent roof surfaces. Now, adjacent could be uh, if you have a north-south facing roof where you're putting your PV array on the south facing roof, now you can have your three-foot pathway on the north facing roof where there's no PV at all. You can also have a second pathway on another adjoining roof surface. Unfortunately, the language in the code wasn't very clear as to what's a permissible adjoining roof surface. So for argument's sake, let's say we have a single ridge roof where one roof face faces south, the other roof face faces north, and attached to that structure is another roof that's set down by 24 inches in height. Well, according to the the code language, if you read it just in the black and white, you can have a access pathway on that lower roof surface. There's no clarification as to what a permissible step-up height would be, although in New York, they have established 24 inches as the maximum permissible step-up height where that pathway that's on the lower roof surface can be utilized to access the PV array that's on the higher roof surface. Right. So theoretically, your firefighter wearing his Scott pack would be able to at least get a leg up and his body up and over that 24-inch height. I kind of doubt that somebody could get all of that equipment any higher. Agreed. Uh, you know, I when I first started researching this, my instinct told me that 18 inches was probably uh, a permissible maximum. And interestingly, uh, a friend of ours, Alan Fields, who spends his life uh, dealing with these issues, uh, stated that New York was the only place he knows that has specified 
a dimension 24 inches as the maximum reasonable step up height. So when you're trying to figure out where those pathways should be on your plan uh, drawings, I would suggest uh, listing for the jurisdiction what the step up height is between roofs that are at different heights so that they can feel more comfortable approving that plan set relative to where you've shown the pathways to be. So again, this yeah, is better safe than sorry on, um, on getting an approval on something with a six foot height difference. That's unacceptable once it's built. Yeah. Six foot requires a ladder to get to that higher roof surface. So um, now there is some additional details that are important to understand and the building, or I should say that the uh, the residential building and fire codes now are uh, classifying the permissible setbacks based upon the total area that the PV array occupies. If you're less than 33% of the total roof area, again, you can relax that setback from the ridge from 36 inches down to 18 inches, but you must have 18 inches clear now on both sides of the ridge. The premise being that you'd still have a 36 inch wide pathway to walk down that ridge, but you only need 18 inches on either side of it to be clear. And you still need your two roof pathways. You, they, however, do acknowledge that if you fill more than 33% of the roof area, uh, like let's say you've got a home that has a single ridge, gable and roof, with uh, that's facing one roof faces east, one faces west. Well, a common practice today is to fill that roof with solar, and that's permissible with the new setback and pathways. But you do still require a 36 inch uh, setback on either side of the ridge if you have more than 33% of the roof covered in solar panels. Uh, and you don't have sprinklers installed. Now, of course, most existing homes don't have sprinklers. Newer homes in California are getting them as a standard procedure. Uh, but uh, if you don't have sprinklers and you fill that roof with more than 33% of the area with solar, you have to have 36-inch setbacks, but you only need two pathways. In the past, you needed two pathways on each roof surface. Now you only need two pathways on the roof total. So in essence, you could have a single pathway next to the PV array on the east side, a single pathway next to the PV array on the west side, 36 inches set back from the ridge, and that's acceptable. Now, these roof access pathways do have to be over some kind of a load-bearing wall, correct? They can't be over a very long overhang. Well, the code, what the code states on that is that pathways shall be over areas capable of supporting firefighters accessing the roof. That is left open, unfortunately, to jurisdictional interpretation. So if you have a particular roof, a gable end roof that has an exceptionally large overhang, maybe it's three feet, the jurisdiction might make the determination that you can't have a pathway that goes right up the edge of that or the rake of the roof. You might have to set it in over the load-bearing wall. So there's not clarity yet as to what's permissible for the location of that pathway. They just state that it must be over areas capable of supporting firefighters accessing the roof. I feel sorry for people who are designing these roofs on Google Earth and then finding out the reality that that's a huge overhang. Well, you know, we find that uh, when you're doing remote design practices like that using satellite imagery, Google Earth is probably of the lower resolution, although it's improving as the years go by. But, uh, you know, you can't see things like your overhangs from satellite imagery. You can't see sometimes where the vent pipes are at. And you can't tell the condition of that roof in terms of the age of the shingles, the condition of the shingles or the tile underlayment. And more importantly, without ever getting into the attic, you can't determine if there are other roof problems such as pre-existing leaks. Yeah, I think that what this is gonna create is uh, more work for the site survey. Uh, so when somebody actually goes out to the home, they're gonna have to actually do some planning for the pathways. Um, there's also some language that talks about whether the pathways are on a driveway or street side where the firefighters can easily access these pathways. 
So I think that um, it's it's another couple of items for the site surveyor's checklist. To that point, uh, the, the code language does state clearly now at least one pathway shall be provided on the street or driveway side of the roof. So if you have, for example, a long meandering driveway and the home is not uh, very accessible from the street, then the driveway becomes the key reference point as to where that pathway needs to be. The, the whole premise is that as the fire truck pulls up to a home that's on fire, the firefighters don't want to have to be trying to figure out how they're going to get up on the roof. It should be immediately apparent when they pull that fire truck up either from the street side or again, the driveway, although in some rural areas, driveways can be so far from the street and the home can be such so removed that uh, the driveway now becomes that key reference point. Yep. Again, <clears throat> a lot more work for site surveyors. Agreed. And, and sadly, because of the increased uh, flexibility with the reduced pathways and setbacks, the amount of language has increased significantly in the code books. So interpreting all of the variables that come in with complex roof types and home locations relative to the street, relative to the driveway, step up heights between roofs of varying heights, all of these variables will be a factor that isn't yet clearly defined. So we will be addressing this with imagery and updated webinars that we'll be conducting on roofing codes and standards. We do them monthly and our next one is scheduled for next week, although we may have to push that back with a, with a, uh, a conflict we have. That said, uh, look for some of the images showing some of the prototypical uh, setback and pathway configurations that will be reviewed in the coming months and anticipate robust conversations starting mid-year in California over how all these variations will be interpreted by jurisdictions. I envision a lot of conversation starting in July in California about how this will be interpreted. Yeah, and it can't be ignored. You can't just say, well, I'll just live with the old setbacks and continue to design the way I have because the pathways have actually changed and are um, in a way easier in some ways and more difficult in others. So you can't just go with what you've been uh, doing in the past. You, you actually do need to get up to speed and have all your designers up to speed on these new requirements. Now, there are provisions for roofs that have sprinklers. For example, if you have a roof that does have sprinklers, you can maintain the relaxed 18-inch setback from the ridge, even if you fill more than 66% of the roof with a PV array. So uh, newer homes in California that are being equipped as standard procedure with sprinkler systems will have the luxury of being able to install larger PV systems. Uh, you have a lot of iterations and variations and permutations on roof array roof versus array size. But when we talk about the array size, it's important to recognize that it's predicated on the overall surface area of the roof uh, for all the structure that's adjoining. If you have a detached garage that's not classified as part of the roof of the home, but if it's an attached garage, any of the roof that's over the structure that's part of that, that home uh, would be used as the reference dimension, and then you take your array, and then again, if you're less than 33% of that overall roof area, which many PV arrays today are, mine certainly is, then you are eligible in most cases for the setbacks. If you have sprinklers, you can go to a much larger array, uh, and, and again, there's some variations on, in between, but look for more detail in an upcoming webinar where we'll try to look at some of the configurations, the variations, the permutations. And uh, let's just talk about the actual setback. And it's not necessarily to the edge of the panel. It's to anything that's sticking out above the panel. So I've, having trained on rail-free systems, there are additional uh, pieces of hardware on shared rail systems and on rail-free systems that typically stick out beyond the panel or above the panel in this case. And I have had some uh, installers say that their inspectors said, oh no, it's not to the panel, it's to any piece of hardware 
that's going to obstruct them. So you have to make sure that the array itself has some planning for anything that might stick out a little bit further on the upper edge, especially if you're going to try to get to that 18 inch from the ridge. Um, you might have, you know, three or four inches sticking up beyond the, the actual module. Such as a, a transition box or a junction box? Uh, no, a mount or a clamp uh, that sits especially in a, on a shared rail or a rail-free system beyond the panel itself. But that does, that does beg the question. If you do, for example, have a junction or transition box bolted to the, the uphill rail, I yep. presume that most jurisdictions would consider that part of the PV array so the dimension would start from the furthest uphill portion of that transition or junction box to the ridge. That's right. Or if you're going to support the conduit um, up on some of that hardware as well, uh, that might be countered as well. Possibly so. I, when I've had this discussion with some other knowledgeable installers that focus a lot on code language, uh, since sometimes you'll see things like vent pipes that would be in that ridge area, uh, would that be classified as an obstruction? And the interpretation that I've heard from these knowledgeable code uh, folks is that that the ridge itself was never perceived to be a walkway free of obstructions. There's natural roof obstructions that a firefighter today must work around. The, the differentiation, though, is that if any of those obstructions are physically attached to the PV array and are part of it, that's where your dimensional uh, measurement point starts. Right. So... Um... Just a heads up to those using shared rail or rail free, you may end up with a couple extra inches you have to accommodate. Now, another new development in the fire and residential building code is that if you have a second story uh, room that has a window, you now have to have a 36 inch wide emergency escape pathway underneath that window. Right. We, uh, for this podcast, we actually looked up um, what is an egress window and where does it have to be used? And uh, the language that we found said that any basement or sleeping room has to have an egress, two, two means of egress. Um, and usually one of those means of egress is a window. And it has to be a minimum of 5.7 square feet in order to allow, let's say, the fireman with his Scott pack in or someone out. And I have many times installed PV arrays below these bedroom windows and wondered what would happen in the case of a fire and whether or not the you know, person trying to get in or out would have to climb over the PV array in order to do that. Well, and uh, the other topic that we discussed is, does that mean every room that has a window would need a emergency escape pathway and according to the language that we read and, and some of the work that, Sue, you've done, you perceive that to be any, quote unquote, sleeping room? Yes, sleeping room or basement, uh, which we're not worried about basements here, but a sleeping room is the term used in the IRC. So the question that I asked when I heard the term sleeping room is I have in my own home, a home office, I'm sitting in it right now with a... Uh, it's a second story home office where I have a first story window immediately outside of the window that I would use as an emergency exit. Uh, it so happens that my PV array is just a bit off to the side, but if it were under the window, I'm wondering, well, gee, if this is a home office, does that comply? And my instincts tell me that a jurisdiction would probably say, yes, that room, while it might be currently equipped as a home office, could easily be used as a, quote, sleeping room. But it does beg the question about things like bathrooms. I have a master bathroom that uh, is attached to my master bedroom, which has a doorway opening. It's not a door that opens and closes, just an opening. Uh, in there, I have a glass block window, but there's no emergency uh, uh, exit point in that very large master bathroom. So it's just one of the other idiosyncrasies that exists when you're talking about uh, providing emergency escape uh, methods for people that might be trapped in it. In fairness, if there were a fire in my home, the, you know, going from the master bathroom into the master bedroom is easy enough. And I could escape out of the two very large windows there that do 
uh, exit into a roof, a single story roof underneath that would be an easy emergency access or exit point. But it, it, this is another complexity that will likely be uh, dissected by jurisdictions and solar installers in the coming months. Just think about that poor site survey, surveyor now. He's, you know, that person now has to determine whether or not that window that he's seeing above an array is a sleeping room and therefore has to have a 36-inch clear path. And I would assume they'll just naturally always classify it as a window that would need emergency access path. So that's a another complexity that folks have to deal with. Um, I, I would... Having put a PV array on a single-story roof that uh, that goes into a wall that then leads up to my second story, then you know I I, I have a roof that qualifies for this issue. As, as it happened, there wasn't enough room underneath my window to put PV modules. Although we could have probably shoehorned some in there, we just opted not to. So, um, uh, and again, I'm not going to kid you, while we have gotten these reduced pathways and setbacks, which is good news, the complexity of the language is significant. And I'm envisioning a lot of conversation that will be occurring between solar installers and jurisdictional officials as to how to interpret this language. Yeah, and just to go back, I, th I think I'm going to encourage everyone to um, sign up for Jeff's next scheduled webinar, which will probably be in early February, um, that'll include all of these pictures where it's much more um, definable and easier to plan based on, on the great drawings that you've got and will be available to them for download after the webinar if they participate. Now, there are a few additional notes to mention that occurred with this new code language. First and foremost, it's very clear in the residential code that setbacks and pathways are not applicable when you've got a low slope roof. If your slope is less than 212 pitch, a lot of people refer to these as flat roofs. There is no requirements for setbacks and pathways at all residentially. For commercial, that's... that's uh, dictated by the building code, you must have uh, setbacks and pathways on low slope commercial roofs, but not on residential. So in essence, if you're dealing in a flat residential roof, they're common in Tucson, places like that, the old Santa Fe style homes, there's really no setbacks and pathway requirements whatsoever from a code standpoint. Uh, and another major uh, clarification code is that detached non-habitable structures, such as a detached garage, do not need setbacks and pathways. So if you've got a garage that's not attached to your home with a standard 412 pitch shingle roof, you can fill both sides of that with solar with zero setbacks, zero pathways. That is now clarified for the first time ever in code language. This is very positive. It also applies to things like sh solar shade structures, pergolas. Um, there's a lot of structures that are non-habitable that get PV that certain jurisdictions have been mandating setbacks and pathways, and now you have absolute justification for saying, I'm going to fill that roof with solar. In some cases, with all of these uh, requirements for, you know, bedrooms and all of these things, it may actually be better and cheaper to build somebody a shade structure or a carport and get, a, get, get the whole thing covered than to uh, worry about all of these setbacks. It, it is possible. I suppose uh, most folks don't have the luxury of added space to build a new structure like that, but it, it, it certainly crossed my mind. I have a uh, covered patio in the back of my home. It's actually at attached to my structure. Uh, it, is a, 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 it was a permitted add-on that I had built. Uh, it, it unfortunately faces north, but I'll tell you what, if it were facing south, I would certainly give serious consideration to putting PV modules over the top of it. Uh, so this, this clarification that detached non-habitable structures are exempt from setbacks and pathways is a huge win for the solar industry. And I know many solar installers, particularly in places like LA County, LA City, will really, I'm sure, enjoy having these conversations with the building department because there they have really enforced setbacks and pathways, even if you've got uh, a solar shade structure that's not even attached to the home. Yeah. And let's just remind everybody that uh, the fire code official always has the 
um, the right to waive these requirements if rooftop operations won't be employed. And that's, that's always been the case. So while this is future code and we're gonna be appealing to the AHJ's better side in order to you know, try to get this enforced sooner than later, um, the fire code official might be the more reasonable person to talk to and say, uh, are you gonna get on that roof surface at all? Can you just waive the requirement uh, right from the start? And I know a lot of solar installers are apprehensive about talking with fire officials about, gee, can we get a, a exception or exemption from this requirement? I don't know that you should be apprehensive about having those conversations. As an example, in Sebastopol, California, the fire chief had determined that if you had a metal panel roof like standing seam or through fastened and it was greater than a 12-12 pitch, admittedly a very steep slope roof, that they would never put a fire official on, or a, I should say a firefighter on a roof like that to vertically ventilate it, and you could fill that roof with solar. So that was a ruling that they made straight up. So I would encourage solar installers when there are these questions, certainly you can contact Quick Mount PV to get a little bit more technical perspective before you have that discussion with the fire official. But I, I feel that it is a conversation worthy of having in the more time that you spend talking with your local fire officials, the more likely that they will pay attention to this code language, this new improved code language, and that they will have more practical uh, requirements at a jurisdictional level that make it at least they'll define things in a way so that it, you don't learn about it after you've submitted your permit application and have to make revisions. Right. Very much agreed. Now, there, uh, we've recently been discussing these relaxed setbacks and pathways. I did a webinar with Calcia a couple weeks ago. Probably the number one question is, what happens to the commercial roof sector? Are there any changes? And by and large, there aren't any substantial changes to the setbacks and pathways in the International Building Code uh, or applicable to commercial structures in the Fire Code, although... Uh, there is a elimination of the centerline access pathway. So if you had a, a large structure, it used to be that they would look at the centerline in both directions and they wanted to have a uh, pathway down that centerline. There is no more requirement. You still have to have every 150 feet a break in your modules to allow for ventilation. It's an eight foot break before you can continue your next section of array. That's not changed. It's just they've eliminated this center line access pathway. Uh, by and large, there are no more uh, requirements that are different than the previous requirements for the setbacks and pathways on commercial. Well, that's good to hear because the last thing we need to do is worry about changing those uh, setbacks as well. And typically speaking, they're not as onerous uh, in part because most commercial structures have large roofs where you might have to, you know, get away from things like the vent hatches and the skylights. You know, you'd have to have a four foot uh, uh, clearance from those devices. You have to have your smoke ventilation corridors at eight feet wide every 150 feet. You have to have a uh, setback from the parapet wall, of course. So those are some of the requirements, but I rarely hear of commercial rooftop installations struggling with setbacks and pathways residentially. Yeah, there's a lot of struggle. Sure. So, well, another thing that we uh, recently talked about was far as forward code uh, that an installer actually recently asked me about because Quick Mount PV makes a conduit mounting flashed roof attachment, um, was forward code in the 2017 NEC, has actually changed and allows the installer to not have to worry about a D-rate table, an adder, a temperature adder table, um, when they're talking about a residential rooftop. Um, installing the conduit is easier now because you only have to reach a 23 millimeter or 7 eighths height over the roof in order to comply with the 2017 NEC. And as we've said many times, you can just appeal to the HJ's um, good nature and say, look, the editor table, which was troublesome in the 2011 and the 2014 code book, has been eliminated in the 2017 book. 
and just as long as you're seven eights over the roof, you're you're good. So one major forward code that you can probably use to your advantage as well. And and conduit mounts are a product that Quick Mount PV has offered for gosh, uh, I would say the last eight years or so. Yeah, so it, it's certainly a desirable approach whenever you're running your conduit across the roof that you would use a flashed mount that would both properly secure the conduit with a screw into the sheathing so it's not going to move around as well as waterproof in a in a shingle manufacturer compliant method, manner that screw that you're securing the conduit to the roof. So the conduit mount is something you can check out on the Quick Mount PV website. It's been uh, recently upgraded to the new rounded corner flashings that had the alignment guide notches that make it a lot easier to install and um, uh, we'll be continuing to refine that product with the changes in the National Electric Code. Today you can use the U-shaped conduit clamp to get the conduit uh, more than seven-eighths of an inch above the roof surface to avoid that 33 degrees Celsius temperature adder, which most installers prefer to avoid when possible. Yeah, I've seen a lot of installations where they didn't even know about our conduit mount, and they used an additional L-foot mount, you know, to put the conduit on, which is pretty ugly and um, not the, the nicest way to install that conduit. So that's the uh, sum total of what we wanted to discuss today in our podcast. I will mention that the documentary film that I was involved in making for two years will be showing at several events in the coming months, including uh, showing on March 1st at Quick Mount PV's facility in Walnut Creek, California, hosted by NorCal Solar. We'll also be showing the documentary film at the NABSIP conference in Niagara Falls in the middle of March, as well as at the Midwest Renewable Energy Fair in Custer, Wisconsin in the middle of June. Other than that, we'll have some private showings. I'm doing one in a couple weeks at a friend's company down in Tucson, and then we'll be up in Grass Valley in early March to show it. So we'll have a few other showings, but we expect in time that we'll be able to bring that movie to a larger audience and uh, help educate the masses as to how the PV industry really came into existence and hopefully communicate some of the wisdom of our founding fathers and mothers uh, because they're really a, an entertaining, interesting group of people who I think have a lot of valuable perspective to communicate to both the solar community and the public as a whole. And the passion for the subject matter and the way of life just came through so clearly in that movie that uh, I applaud you for being able to put down permanently these people's impressions and thoughts and feelings about why they got into the industry and why they're still in it today, many of them. Well, I'm, I'm pleased to say that at the NAPSIP conference, Charlie Gay, who's the current director of the DOE Sunshot program, will be the keynote speaker, also was featured in the documentary film. So it'll be interesting to be there when he's watching it and getting his perspective on the early years of the PV industry. And of course, now that he's working in the Department of Energy, managing the solar-related activities to get his perspective on how the industry has changed and evolved. So I hope uh, some of you folks might be able to come out to the NABSEP conference in Niagara Falls in, in March. No snow, fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. I'll be there. All right, folks. Well, thanks again for participating in another Solar Roof Talk podcast. And uh, we'll see you again, not too distant future, with other topics that are of interest to solar installers that are doing rooftop installations. Thanks, Jeff. Great chatting with you as always. Likewise, Sue. Have a great day. This episode of Solar Roof Talk is brought to you by Quick Mount PV's L-Mount. The cost competitive L-Mount is an integrated flashing mount and L-foot for composition shingle roofs. To learn more about the L-Mount, 